A big hello to our listeners and welcome to the first podcast of Crick Vidya. Crick Vidya is an initiative to track the world of cricket with a special focus on analytics in cricket. With that in mind, we are thrilled to have as our first guest Dan Weston, who is into cricket analytics in England. Dan started off by writing about tennis and then moved into cricket analytics. He has worked with T20 teams helping them with recruitment as well as game strategies. He has also recently come out with a book on T20 analytics called Strategies for Success in Indian Premier League. In this podcast, we will discuss a range of topics with Dan. We will start with first talking about various ways in which analytics is being used in cricket currently, what more can be done and what can we learn from other sports. We then talk about how meaningful and relevant the current statistical analysis is. Then we talk about the three-point moment and Dan reveals what according to him is the potential three-point moment of cricket. We also look at how teams can improve on analytics around a particular venue and also talk about the impact of age on a player's performance and attractiveness to a franchise. Dan also gives his views on why thinking about matchups in terms of a particular batsman versus a particular bowler is a bad idea. And finally, we end, end by discussing how domestic T20 tournaments can be better used as platforms for scouting IPL talent. So without further ado, we welcome Dan Weston. Hi Dan, thank you for agreeing to talk to us. Looking forward to a really insightful discussion. Hi there, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to doing this. So Dan, why don't you start by telling our users more about your background, how you started with tennis and why you moved into cricket analytics? Sure, yeah, I've always had this kind of very mathematical background. I had a degree in accounting and finance and, and, and had this passion for sport as well. I mean, when, when I was very young, for example, I can remember that... that I was always looking at trying to like simulate cricket matches even when I was like eight or ten years old and stuff like that, you know. Okay. So so this is kind of eventually kind of gone into this natural progression, I suppose, really. Um, cricket, uh, I did a lot of work uh, previously and still did uh, some work with, with tennis and analytics as well. Um, but realistically, I think the commercial application of, of, of data in tennis was, was quite limited. Um, the players just it's very difficult to get them on board with it because they they, they don't have the open mind necessarily towards it. So um, I went with I went I went towards cricket instead because I mean you know, the, the other sports I love cricket and football. And football is quite a saturated market now, so I thought there would be more of a potential avenue and niche in cricket. And 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 yeah, I, I think that it was it was the right decision, but. By the same token, I think still think that, that cricket has a long way to go before before mm. that saturation point where where everyone's got you know really good strategies. So you've been associated with Birmingham Phoenix also in the hundred. It would be great if you could give us an idea about your role there and how you're using analytics to build strategies for them. Yeah, so so I was I was on board with with Birmingham Stalam and um, it's been a fantastic experience. Um, we we started obviously the draft planning in advance of, of the draft which took place in October last year obviously it's a real shame that the 
the tournament is not taking place this summer, but, but, but yeah, obviously it's a very difficult situation around the world at the moment. Um, so yeah, we, I, I done, I done a lot of work with, you know, obviously player data, trying to identify the players that, 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 that we wanted to sign. And obviously I do that in conjunction with the coaching staff as well. And, you know, obviously we discuss players to and fro and have a lot of meetings and, and yeah, eventually obviously the, the, the head coach makes his, makes decisions, but, but obviously having that data driven insight as well, I think is quite useful for, for that decision making. So another thing that I would like to get your views on is uh, that how mature is analytics in cricket? So what are teams already doing and what more can be done in analytics? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I don't think that it's very mature at this current point in time. So I, I've already mentioned football is a lot more kind of saturated market in terms of analytics. And I think that, that, that football's, you know, ahead of cricket when it comes to, to sort of efficient and, and, and data-driven decision-making. I also think cricket, obviously, as probably most people appreciate, is, is a long way behind American sports, such as you know, baseball, um, particular uh for for efficient and, and analytics data-driven strategies and recruitment and so obviously there are some examples of teams who who do already adopt that that, that more data-driven focus um but it's certainly not across the board in cricket and i think that a lot more a lot more can be done and 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 as the future develops say the next especially particularly with the next five years or maybe 10 years maximum I think, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, changes in this respect. I think that there will be teams will teams will certainly understand the importance of it a lot more, and and it will have more weight in the future. So, as you said, uh, American baseball is quite far ahead in terms of analytics if we compare it to cricket. Uh, it would be great if you could give us some examples of uh, what we can adopt from there and bring in into cricket. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, the, 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 I don't know if uh, a lot of your your readers, or listeners, and, and viewers have read Moneyball, but there were some good examples in 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 that book of of the Oakland Athletics using different data to other teams to identify the quality of players, and and, and this is something that that I've tried to adopt in my analytics in, in looking at different metrics as well. So. Um, at the current point in time, for example, uh, strike rotation, prevention of dots as a bowler, and so strike rotation as a batsman, ability to, to nick quick singles and turn turn ones into twos, uh, and fielding are, are, are generally considered to be uh, desirable, also very important skill sets. But actually, my 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 historical data, analysis of historical data would suggest that they're they're very limited in terms of of the impact that they have on the match result. So I would say that they're more desirable rather than mandatory. Whereas mandatory statistics, basically it's very difficult for a team to win a match without winning, having a higher percentage of boundaries in their, in the, in their innings than their opposition does. So obviously it's a two, kind of two-fold strategy. So you, not only are you looking at boundary hitting, but you're looking at boundary prevention as well. But mm. teams will, will routinely spend big money at, at auctions and drafts on on players with below average boundary percentages and also considerably worse than average boundary concession percentages. Now, obviously, you can give a little bit of uh, leeway to, to a bowler who's bowling at the death when there's a lot more boundaries scored. 
but you can also compare like for like as well and and, and even in an IPL auction there's bowlers picked up at, at the auction who can see like 22% plus boundaries um, and, and it's very difficult to make a statistical case for, for throwing big money at these type of players and next let's talk about uh, different ways in which analytics can be used in cricket so as I understand it uh, there are four uh, broad uh, places where analytics can be used one is uh, at auction strategy uh, second is uh, team uh, selection, the 11. Uh, third is uh, when you're making strategies before the match. And then last is the uh, strategy during the match. So according to you, uh, where are teams uh, using analytics uh, as of now and where there is scope for a better usage of analytics? Yeah, I think that it's more focused towards the latter two uh points that you make so um strategy before the game and and maybe some in-play strategy as well but uh a lot of that will probably be more like video analysis and working out potential plans for particular players i i i don't see a lot of analytics used with with your auction or recruitment i mean teams will say that they do but i don't think it's particularly advanced because just primarily because the players that I, I that I, I, my work will show you that that they don't have a great deal of value in terms of contributing to to match win percentages or increasing match win percentages or expected win percentages for their team. Uh, that, that a lot of them are signed for big money, so it's quite reputation driven a lot of the time. There's a lot of recency bias, uh, and also a lot of um, weight is attributed to other formats, performances in other formats as well. And I think that T20 is, is, is virtually a different sport. It's even considerably different to 50 over cricket where there's um, a, a rather different skill set. So my perception is that the ODIs, 50 over cricket, is, is a much more batting orientated format in terms of like, you need a good batting lineup to, to, to perform well. You can hide a couple of bowlers a lot easier. Whereas in T20, it's, it's very difficult to hide a couple of mediocre bowlers. And, and, and in T20, I have this kind of theory where batsmen win matches and bowlers win tournaments. You, you, you look at the historical uh, data for, for all leagues around the world, you will find that, that, that it's very, very difficult to even come in the top four to qualify out of group stages if um, a team has a considerably below average bowling attack, no matter how good their batting is. So a classic case could be RCB, right? Yeah, very much so. I mean, they spend like something like thirty-five percent of their budget on two batsmen, hmm. and, and, and 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 obviously it makes it very difficult for them to then sort of create a, a strong bowling attack, and, and and not just a strong bowling attack, but having enough enough depth to cope with with injuries and 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 sort of some match-ups and certain you know, venue or opposition-based selections, it's very difficult to have that flexibility as well. So um, when you're spending so much money on batsmen, so I mean, for, for me, it's probably going to be, you know, a lot of people probably won't agree with me, especially like, fans in India as well. But yeah. I, for me, you either have to pay Kohli and Davilias less or you have one of them. You don't need to. <laughs> because they're almost like giving themselves... They're making themselves have to play catch up because they spent so much money on two batsmen. Now, strong my my book I've, I've written a lot about strong 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 links and weak links, and having two 
marquee batsmen, world-class batsmen, historically looks like it's given less edge than it does having strong, weak bowlers, if that makes sense. So the teams who have the least worst, worst bowlers, the best worst bowlers, if you like, they, <laughs> they do a lot better than their teams with the best batsmen. Hmm. So having that, the high quality fourth and fifth bowlers or fifth and sixth bowlers is, is much more important than having like, you know, marquee batsmen. So generally I would say that, that analysts will drive maybe some more strategy before a game, um, some in-game strategy, whereas au- auction and recruitment is usually quite head coach and, and owner-driven. And team selection is obviously very head coach driven as well. So, um, yeah, I would say that, that, that there's a lot more that analytics can do to, to kind of get into the auction and recruitment and team selection strategy decisions, decisions that teams make a lot more than, than it is currently. So next we move on to your book, Strategies for Success in Indian Premier League, which has been released uh, very recently. The first question I have about the book is that who is this book intended uh, for? Uh, Is it uh, the team owners, the coaches or the strategy people or a general fan can also read and enjoy this book? Yeah, I think that that it would be, I'd like to think that it's focused towards everybody, really. I think that there's there's, there's things that that coaches, players, owners uh, and, and the typical fan will all benefit from as well in, in many different areas so like, yeah coach i would i'd like to i would like to say would hopefully look at look at what i've written and and see that that's challenged their their point of view in some way shape or form in, in several areas uh, and where a player might might turn around and say well, okay well um he's saying that this is really important uh, as a kind of well, a way to help a team succeed but maybe Maybe I'm not so strong at that area, so um, I need to upskill a little bit. And obviously, fan, you know, obviously it, 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 in England, the IPL is growing quite a lot in terms of its um, popularity. Um, and obviously, in India, it, it's absolutely huge. You know, it's it's right. it's, 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 it's you know, by far the biggest sporting event probably in the country. Would you say? Yeah. And. and, and, and um, I think that the fan will benefit a lot from that as well because, you know, on TV, perhaps sometimes the statistics that they use on the TV are quite basic, first level. And I think that going into player data in a lot more deeper way will will appeal to a lot of fans as well because, you know, it's going to hopefully inform them more before the tournament started. And that's why I wanted to try and get the book released before the tournament started. You know, obviously, we don't know for sure when it's going to be rescheduled for this year. But... Um, I'm anticipating probably September, October time. And um, I wanted, it's a long book, and I wanted people to be able to read, digest, think about it before the tournament started. So then they can watch the tournament and perhaps hopefully be a little bit more informed. So that, that's, that was important to me. So I went through the list of chapters in your book and found a few really interesting ones. The way I would like to structure this discussion is that we pick up a few of the chapters and you can give us some insights into the topic. Obviously, each chapter could have become a basis of a separate podcast, but you would like people to buy and read the book as well. So we will consciously try not to go into too much detail for any of the topics. 
So let's start with the chapter which is called Cricket Statistics, A Tool to Mislead. You recently shared an excerpt from your book on LinkedIn, where you said that in many of the analysis being done currently, the context is missing or the sample size is too small to draw any meaningful conclusions. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, no, no problem. So basically, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways where stats can can mislead or be of complete irre- irrelevance. Basically, so you know, like I'll give you an example. Um, there might be you might watch a TV and and the number six for England might score a century against Australia, right? And the commentator might turn around and say, "Well." His innings was the fourth longest by an England number six against Australia. Well, well, what benefit is that to anybody to know that type of information? There's none. There's no future future benefit that can be ascertained from from having that information. So you've got to cut through that rubbish and and find things which are relevant for for, for understanding the future potential of a player, future potential of a team, future future potential of, of a coach, everything like that. And, and, and understanding understanding more sort of detailed metrics is huge, as opposed to those kind of meaningless statistics that, that are often, often on broadcast. Now, um, for example, T20 scorecard will have like the minutes of a, an innings of a player, yeah. how many minutes they batted or... It'll have like a maiden overs for for a bowler. Well, who cares about a maiden over for a T Twenty? They just don't happen. It's like it's one in one in a thousand chance or something like that, probably. Yeah. So, so like, what's the point of even working that work that stuff out? It has absolutely no benefit to anybody apart from a traditionalist. Hmm. So, you need to find a better a better solution. So a better solution might be you might want to on a scorecard you of course have to find out the fours and six scored by a batsman and, and conceded by a bowler mandatory. You also should be able to understand a normal fan this is on a free database, so they should be able to understand what how many runs a player scored in boundaries, how many runs they scored as a non-boundary, how many runs they scored against pace, how many runs they scored against spin, what was their strike rates against pace, what was their strike rates against spin. And the bowlers as well. What phases did they bowl in? Because there's no good. There's no good giving a guy credit for going at seven and over when he's bowling the middle overs. When a guy bowling eight, bowling for eight and over at the death, he's probably done a better job. So we have to understand that context a lot more to be able to to appraise a player's performance. And I don't think that the the current stats uh, match stats for for players and matches is giving the fan enough information to understand whether a player's done well or badly. So another important factor that we at Crick Vidya strongly believe is that our T20 game is evolving so fast that any data which is older than, let's say, two to three years is quite irrelevant for analysis of any player or a team. So we try to do all our analysis, especially for T20 cricket, only on the basis of last three years' data. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So um, I, I generally don't like using data if I can avoid it over over that uh, time period. And there's a lot of reasons for that. So one reason, for example, is that the, the, the strike rates of a lot of competitions accelerated in 2017 onwards. So it's very important to compare like for like. So 
you know, a 125 strike rate 10 years ago might be acceptable, but it's not acceptable now. So, so understanding that sort of historical context is, is big. But also, three years is, is often a very considerable part of a player's career. So if you're, you know, you're 20, say you're 23, 22, 23 years old, you're going to be a lot different and hopefully a lot improved player from when you were 19 or 20. So it's, you wouldn't want to, and you certainly wouldn't want to look at their stats as a seventeen-year-old when they're twenty-three. It's just not relevant, you know. Their games should be in different places. By the same token, as well, you see you see a decline often in players who are in their thirties. So why would you look at say like a data for a player's player when they're like tw- when they're you know the twenty-nine-year-old data when they're now thirty-four or thirty-five? It's just got no relevance at all. Twenty-nine ballpark is will be peak age. No. 34, 35 probably isn't PKH. So these things need to be treated with almost separation. Because and, and this is, goes back to what I was saying about the basic statistics that are on broadcast. They might put like, career data on it. Well, well, that tells you nothing about where the player's game is currently at. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. It tells you how good they are in the past and tells you how good they are a long time in the past a lot of the time. It doesn't tell you how good they are now. So another question I have, uh, more from a cricket fan's perspective, is that uh, have we reached a stage where uh, uh, a batting and a bowling team both have uh, access to the same analytics? So a batsman would already know that uh, the bowling team would be targeting this particular weakness of his. So this becomes uh, more of a game theory situation rather than a statistical analysis. Yeah, I think in the future it's going to be a lot more kind of game theory, zero sum eventually, potentially as well, depending on how efficient it is. But I don't, I don't see that as the case right now necessarily. There's still a lot of guesswork, you know. In England, for example, there's bowlers like Pat Brown, Benny Howe, who have a huge number of variations and 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 will keep batsmen guessing a lot more about what they're going to bowl. Uh, um, Whereas, yeah, I, and also I don't think that necessarily batsmen are are, are that thinking in terms of what a bats what a bowler will, will bowl next as well. Um, I, I, some players are going to be a lot more into analytics and trying to predict stuff a lot more than others as well. There's not that blanket uh, sort of take up from players, if you like. So I think that there's probably I don't th- I don't see it as being like a kind of a in-depth game theory situation yet, although it probably does have the potential to turn into it eventually. So let's move to the next chapter now, uh, which is called Understanding Venue Dynamics. Would like to understand what are your findings here? Because uh, at a very basic level, I think every team would be doing uh, its uh, team selection and strategies on the basis of how the pitch is, how the external conditions are. So is there something more to it that you found out? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it. So, so for example, I would look at a lot in, in depth at historical data with regards to um, selection and strategies. So, for example, at Chipork, uh, Chennai's home ground, mm. um, there is obviously, you know, it's a very spin-friendly venue. So... I can't remember the exact figures, but it's not far off three runs per over better economy for spin than it is for pace there in the last two seasons, the IPL. So obviously it should be 
in the forefront of opposition teams' minds to to bowl a lot of spin there. Hmm. However, that's not been particularly the case. So, well, yeah, they bowled more spin at Chipport than other venues, but they're not bowling as much spin as CSK. So CSK yeah. are bowling like roughly about 10%, uh, 10% more overs. No, sorry, 10 balls per innings more, sorry, I should say. Uh, over, uh, more than 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 uh, the opposition teams by spin. No, also actually, going back on that, it is about ten percent. It's about fifty-seven percent versus forty-seven percent of spin balls bowled. So just to clarify that, um, going off memory of a, of a long book. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, um, yeah. So that's that's obviously an area where the opposition teams need to use that sort of venue data a lot more. And they might turn around and say, well, okay, there's only one match at. Uh, at, the, at that venue in 2018 and then we're going a full season in 2019 but if you look at say the last three games of that at that venue in isolation that was still the case even though we'd had all the data from 2019 to show that that was that, that there was a big spin bias and not only that if you look at say I think there was one or two T20 internationals there and some also some historical data before before CSK left the IPL for several years as well we all pointed to the fact that the ground was very, very conducive to spin bowling and friendly towards spinners, and and so teams should have gone to the matches in in, in Chennai with a default mindset to bowl like three spinners. Hmm. So, are you saying that uh, that thing, according to you, is not happening? No, it's not happening enough. So, there's a lot of scope for improvement, but you can say that in in all type of forms of cricket as well. Um, Test matches. There was, I, I can't. I think it was the first test for England against South Africa last year. I, I could be wrong about that, but there was one match in the winter for England that it was. This was overwhelmingly the case, and England chose to field first, despite all of the statistical evidence pointing to the fact that the pitch will probably deteriorate in the fourth innings, uh, and, and that there was a considerable advantage to bank first. Mm. So I don't know. It's. I, I think that a lot of it has to do with certain coaches and certain captains being a lot more or less open to, to data than their own kind of eyes, if that makes sense. And I think a lot of it is driven on that. So maybe it will take uh, a few more years for them to accept analytics and start using it for building strategies. I think uh, so. See, uh, according to me, uh, most coaches that are coaching teams right now, when they were playing, uh, there was minimal use of analytics and data for making strategies. So it is very difficult for them to accept this new reality that now they have to depend on somebody else and collaborate with somebody else to to build strategies for the team. Yeah, and I think that's a very valid point. And, and, and that's particularly the case in T20 cricket a lot. So the, the vast majority of current coaches either played very limited amount or didn't play T20 cricket at all. So perhaps their, their their mindset is too ingrained from other formats, whereas perhaps in, say, 10 years' time, a higher percentage of coaches will have played a lot more T20, and so you might see the situation change. True. Uh, let's move on uh, to the next chapter now, and that is called three-point moment. Uh, to start with, uh, it would be great if you could explain to our listeners what exactly a three-point moment is? Three-point moment comes as a term that comes from, from basketball. So they, they eventually, some analysts worked out that there was 
um, considerable advantage to going for three-point shots more than it was to go for, like I say, a mid-range two-point shot. So going further back, but shooting further back. And even though the success rate was perhaps less, the benefit yielded from getting that extra point overweighed the drop in success for hitting the, hitting the shot in the basket. And so they called it the three-point moment. And then because everyone worked out eventually, and then so everyone does the same kind of strategy, yeah. a bit like that game theory stuff we were talking about earlier. Uh, uh, and cricket hasn't really had that moment yet at all. Uh, and it needs to. And so my, I think I found the three-point moment, but at the moment it's just it's just in my mind rather than, <laughs> rather than exhibited on the pitch. Uh, and the three-point moment really focuses on boundary hitting. So in the IPL in the last three seasons, 87% of teams have won the match when they hit the high, a higher boundary percentage than their opposition. Oh. And the 13% where it didn't happen were like either one really close matches, two rain-affected matches, or three, um, the team who had a higher percentage of boundaries but lost hit way less sixes than their opposition. So the, the opposition ended up hitting more bound, less boundaries, but the boundaries they hit were often worth two runs more. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So you are saying that uh, boundary hitting could be cricket's three-point moment. Very much so, because... You can't. It's, it's it's virtually very very difficult to to win a match if you hit lower percentage of boundaries than opposition. And if you do hit a lower percentage of boundaries and win, it's, like I said, it's usually a very close match, or you have to have hit a lot more sixes than your opposition. So the boundaries you score fewer, but they're worth two runs more. Hmm. So so, so the, the the understanding which players can help you win that boundary percentage count is massive. Be it a batsman who's you know very aggressive, but then you could also say, well, a batsman you might want to pick one like stability rotator for your team, or you know a player who can play forty or thirty balls or fifty or thirty-five or something like that, and let your and but while he's not helping your team win that boundary count necessarily, by via his innings and in isolation, he might be helping all of the other players to maximise their boundary percentage by kind of like being the fulcrum of the team, you know? Mm. But then also from a bowling perspective, you need to find bowlers who are very good at, 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 at um, not conceding boundaries. So someone like, for example, Jasper Brumar is, 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 is like a premier bowler for, for failing to, you know, for sorry, succeeding in preventing boundaries. Very So he should be an absolute asset to any team. And obviously... You know, it's probably not a great deal of, of news to anybody that he's very good, a very good bowler. But by the same token, there's a lot of bowlers who are very underrated but good at that metric as well. So this should be taken into account uh, in a team's auction strategy also, wherein they give more value to boundary hitters or maybe bowlers who uh, concede less percentage of boundaries and in terms of batsmen also, you give more importance to boundary percentages rather than strike rates. Yeah, I mean, there's probably there's probably a role for like a 130 strike rate type player, one per team. But a lot of teams go with like a lot more than one per team. Yeah. And I think that they're costing themselves positive expectation from that. 
And also those players are, are, are quite overrated in, t- in the auction as well in terms of the price that they're purchased for. So um, to give me an example, like a lot of those rotation players who are bought for say eight crore or more at auction, you can usually find like an 80% version of that player in a domestic market who you can buy for like 50 luck or something like that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so so you're there's a plentiful supply of those players like in the domestic market. So it makes sense to, to kind of pick like a rotation batsman from the domestic market for cheap, and then use your big money for like a premium all rounder or death bowlers. This one is quite insightful. I'm looking forward to seeing how the three point movement of cricket develops. So let's move on to the next chapter now. This one is called Risk and Rewards of Pinch Hitting. Yeah. So uh, if I look at IPL, I don't uh, actually see a lot of pinch hitters uh, being used. One that probably everybody would uh, remember is Sunil Narayan. But apart mm-hmm. from that, uh, frankly, I cannot recollect anybody who's being used consistently. Yeah, so what's right. your uh, analysis of this? Okay, so I think it's a viable strategy, but at the moment it's executed really badly by a lot of teams. I'm not, I don't really mean an IPL because obviously, as you say, only KKR really use a, a pinch hitter in terms of, you know, obviously, the right. No other team really has used one on a consistent basis, particularly. Um, but there's been a few examples around the world. Um, Narayan, Narayan has been used in, in other leagues as well in, in that role, uh, among other, a couple of other players as well. But the, th- the problem is, is that it's executed very badly because the, if you p- use a pinch hitter, essentially there should be a bowler whose who's wicket value is very, very low in, if they were used in a conventional sense. You know, They might only face a couple of balls at the end of an innings. So the wicket value is not, not great. But there's been examples, for example, uh, to use Narayan as an instance, whereby he's been a pinch hitter, yet the tail started at seven for his team, which is absurd, because then he's putting so much pressure on, you know, his, his style of play, sorry, I should say, and the, and the fact that the team has been selected in that way has put so much pressure on the other batsmen, because Narayan is, a, is an excellent, aggressive batsman, but his wicket is likely to, to be lost more 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 regularly than a, a conventional batsman. His balls per dismissal figure is, is considerably lower than the average opening batsman. So there's this trade-off between strike rate and stability where, where KKR, for example, when he opens, they have a higher strike rate in the power play, but they have a lower balls per dismissal figure. So there's this trade-off. But the other batsmen need to rationalise in their head that... The, this guy's come in, he's, he's going to tee off from the start, he's going to attack, but he's a bowler. And, and, and whether it's Nawine or anyone else, they need to have this mindset. And, and they need to have this, you know, they need to think, okay, well, his wicket isn't worth as much as a conventional batsman, so they can't go into their shell if, if they lost an early wicket or two, because otherwise it completely destroys the point of having a pinch hitter. So I think a pinch hitter would generally be better off being a, a, a bowler who bats at like eight or nine normally so you could say someone like max rashid khan would be a good example or or, or even someone like yeah, krishnapa gautham would be another 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 decent example where a guy who probably has a quite a low balls per innings figure not a balls per dismissal figure a balls per innings figure they just don't face that many balls 
Rashid Khan from memory is like a three balls per innings or something like that. But he's a much better batsman than that. He's kind of wasted facing that little amount of balls. But if he was a pinch hit, he might face like 11 balls per innings and have more of an impact. And then you can just shove everyone down one in the order. You don't need to have that. Um, you, don't, you certainly wouldn't want to have a pinch hitter and then pay five bowlers because it destroys the point of having a pinch hitter. Uh, so five bowlers from seven to 11, I should say, as well as the pinch hitter, because then you've got no stability and you've got a, a long tail. So you need to have that extra little bit of depth if you're going to play a pinch hitter. As a strategy, I think it's fine. But you also have to look at the, like, the knock-on effects of losing early wickets on the death as well. So, for example, if if a team loses three wickets in a power play, on average, they lose like eight runs at the death because obviously it then influences the, the players who are likely to be batting at the death as well. So weaker players are likely to bat at the death because they've lost those early wickets up front. And so there's there's a huge amount of trade-offs that must be considered when you're when you're taking on this strategy of pinch hitting and i'm not particularly convinced that teams are aware of these knock-on effects and trade-offs really they just think okay well this is a guy who can tee off while let's use him they, they don't think okay what's the impact on the death what's the impact on the batsman how do we then change our team selection based on based on using a pinch hitter and all these are areas that must be considered by teams so this is a really interesting perspective given by you. And frankly, I'm also surprised that uh, even after success of Sunil Narayan, not many teams have actually tried with the pinch hitter strategy. Let's hope uh, in the future, a few teams uh, experiment with it and uh, we get to see such uh, interesting stats and figures. So now let's move on to the next topic. Another chapter is called the impact of age. Mm. So this is also interesting because in IPL, on one spectrum, you have CSK, uh, which has maybe an average age of 34, 35. And on the other end of spectrum, there's a team like Delhi Capitals, which is filled with uh, young players. So it would be great if you can give us uh, your views on the impact of age and what were your findings when you did this analysis? Yeah, so the impact of age, I would say, is more, more applicable for like a group of players rather than a particular team. So, I mean, obviously you've given two, two good examples there of teams who are at the, the opposite ages of the age curve, if you like. Um, I, I like the, the approach of, of picking up high-quality players before they reach peak age and then getting those players in uh, perhaps on cheap contracts as well to then mature and improve. Uh, and then you're going to have a group of players who in several years' time, are going to be approaching or at peak age, which will, will, will stand you in good stead for the future. CSK have obviously gone down the, the opposite route in terms of, of their um, recruitment. Um, and at the moment, it's served them well. There are other circumstances involved as to why perhaps they've performed well. They've won a lot of tosses, for example. They've had a very high percentage of, of tosses won in the last two years, which is going to be... A, yeah, have a big impact potentially on that on their their expected success prior to a match, uh, um, uh, and, and that definitely shouldn't be underestimated. Um, I wouldn't say that their their success was exclusively down to having a, a core group of older players, um, but there's also going to be a, a stage in the future, whether it's now, obviously with COVID um, delaying the tournament, or or in a year's time or two years time, there's going to be a stage when they're going to need to have a considerable overhaul of their squad because they're going to be players who are really at the far end of the age curve, towards retirement age, if you like. 
uh, and how they manage that is going to be really important for the future of their franchise in terms of the success. Do they do it gradually, perhaps replacing two players or three players each year, or do they go for like a clean slate at some point as well? And you know, go get rid of them all at the same time if that makes sense. So yeah. there's a lot of a lot of considerations that have to be be made in that in that um, kind of situation. And if you go back to like so English football, English Premier League, it's been on for like almost a month now since it resumed after after the lockdown. And what we've seen so far is that young players have thrived from lockdown. They've gained extra strength. They they, they seem to have kicked on their development a lot more in that time time off they, 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 they on the whole they've performed much better than they did prior to to lockdown and I and I and I wonder whether this will also be the case in cricket as well if you know if there's a, a group of players a team who are like 35 or older are they gonna are they gonna kind of be more rusty when they come back does that make sense hmm. but also the the age is 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 key in terms of like recruitment and usage of players as well. So, what I did was in my book, I I for my book I, I split players into like age brackets, if you like. So I, I considered like twenty seven to thirty year olds to be around peak age, and then thirty one to thirty four as slightly past peak age. Now, if we look at all of the, the players in those particular brackets. I found that the group 27 to 30-year-olds were paid less in terms of the auction sums bought form than 31 to 34-year-olds, but the 27 to 30-year-olds had a higher percentage of appearances, on average appearances per player. So 27 to 30-year-olds are being paid less but used more by IPL franchises than 31 to 34-year-olds. So this, this kind of leads me to conclude that perhaps... IPL teams are are retaining a player for one expensive retention too many a lot of the time as they sort of approach or, or get past their thirties. So that's it's important to understand and to predict at what point a player's career is likely to to decline if they're you know based on the average player decline, and then base future decisions on that because because if if you as a team have a group of 30-year-olds who all declined at the same time and they're on big wages and big, big auction fees, it's a disaster. True. Cool. <laughs> and that, 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 that thing has to be avoided at all costs. So ideally, a team's strategy should take into consideration the age of players and they should plan three to four years in advance uh, as to which players would be coming in and which players would be going out uh, so that uh, the auction strategy can be made according to that. Another point of contention could be that looking at CSK's current team, would it be appropriate to say that uh, other teams have managed uh, uh, the age of the players and the strategy much better than CSK? Well, I don't know what this strategy obviously is at CSK. Perhaps they've got this really detailed succession plan. I don't know. But um, yeah, it's something that teams should be bearing in mind. Where are they going to be in, in three years' time? What type of players and uh, they're not going to be able to to retain in three years' time, kind of thing, because of you know age of decline. And another thing I found as well is that, as for a batsman, 
the ability to rotate as a player who going into their 30s drops. So if they're a bad rotator already in their 20s, then that's a big problem in their 30s. So unless there's someone like, you know, Chris Gale, who has a poor, poor ability to rotate in terms of like his non-boundary strike rate, but is an amazing boundary hitter, then if they're not like that, then there's a problem. So if they're hitting like 15, 16% of boundaries at, at, at the age of 25, 26, which is not great, uh, 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 and, and with average rotation stats, then that's a big worry when you're in your 30s because the rotation will probably drop off and the boundary hitting won't improve. So, so that's something that yeah, needs to be borne in mind a little bit. True, true. Okay, so uh, we move on to the next one. Uh, it's called quantifying matchups, a difficult mm, process. Yeah. So uh, what I've... Uh, kind of noticed is whenever we talk about analytics as of now, matchups is something that will always come up. That is something that uh, I think the teams may be doing it. Uh, most of the teams are doing uh, where mm-hmm. they think that if this batsman has come, we'll bowl this bowler. So yeah. uh, why, uh, why do you think there's uh, quantifying this is a difficult process and how can we improve this? Yeah, I think it's, it's very important because... Um, I don't. I don't see that, that. A lot of the time, like a matchup can have a particularly big sample size. So, for example, if you're looking at like batsman versus bowler matchups, specific batsman versus bowler matchups, a lot of the time there's a sample size of less than 100 balls. In fact, most of the time there's a less than a small sample size of less than 100 balls, even among like the main players in in franchise T20. Um, so, and and even if there is a bigger sample size, a lot of the time they're in like vastly different conditions vastly different stages of a player's career and again we're losing that kind of relevance to let's say for example you've got a 30 year old bowling at a 17 year old five years ago hmm. so that 17 year old is going to be like young got a lot of improvement in him 30 year old is probably like close to peak age um, uh, now five years later 30 year old is now 35 and a 17 year old is now 22 so how can we use those stats from when they were 30 and 17 to, to ascertain whether there's a good matchup or a bad matchup when there's th- they're now 35 and 22. It's impossible. So um, you, there's a hell of a lot of context involved that, that, that needs to be um, applied, you know? Cool. Uh, 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 and um, yeah, just sample size is massive. You, wh- why would you look at, say, like a player's record against, like, say, left arm, slow left arm, off like 150 balls. It doesn't really tell you that much. Strike rate will tell you more because like say like a few boundaries turned into like twos or something like that. Then you might say, okay, well, his strike rate might drop 10 or something like that. But average is, or is, 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 is massive. So let's say, for example, 150 balls scored 200 runs and was dismissed 10 times, right? Average of 20. Hmm. That's not great, okay? Let's say there was two catches that were taken, which were extremely difficult chances and a really like tight run out or something like that. Those, those now those 200 runs could be off seven dismissals without a great deal of difference, and suddenly they're now averaging almost 30. And it's good, and you, okay, okay, well, that's a lot better. But by the same token, as well, you don't know have, have the have like two or three drop catches happened in that sample size, and could you have actually have 13 dismissals off with 200 runs and be averaging like almost 15? And so, there's a lot of different. It's ifs and buts and maybes and stuff that you don't understand because the sample size is so small. And that is really critical. Okay. 
so uh, you were saying that this could be done a lot better and uh, or yeah. you think this is overrated a bit of both okay so i think that the teams overrate uh, small sample sizes of data and individual bats on versus bowler matchups no doubt about that in my opinion no. but i think i think that it can be done a little bit better in terms of i would say that the looking at a player's sample size against say spin as a as a whole as a combined of slow left arm right arm off spin or leg spin um would be a lot more robust and reliable sample size than than looking at say slow left arm in isolation record against that player for again when they're facing a slow left arm so you've got a bigger sample size more robust sample size but then you can also look at let's say like how do if that guy's say, a right-handed batsman how do they how do right-handed batsmen generally match up against slow left armers which again gives you that bigger sample size so you can almost use like two different sample sizes which are a lot more robust in terms of size to then determine whether a, a matchup might be good or bad and I, I i think that that's a lot more reliable than it's not perfect but it's a lot more reliable than than how i think a lot of it's done at the moment sure got it Okay, so uh, another topic that you covered was uh, finding <laughs> gems in lower-level domestic cricket. Yeah, one of my favorite areas, actually, yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about player scouting then. So uh, if we talk about IPL, uh, what, what would you say which team is doing it better and which team is probably not doing it at all? Well, Mumbai have got a very good reputation of finding talented players from lower levels. Um, but I, I think that, that, that a lot of teams can really improve their um, their finding uh, scouting at, at, at the the lower levels of Indian cricket. So obviously, what how I look at it, it might, it might be different to how a lot of, of of your your listeners equate things. I have like a three tiered approach. So the the IPL is like the the peak at the top of the pyramid, if that makes sense. And then yeah. below that, you would have like Syed Mushtaq Ali Trophy. And then below that, you would have like TMPL, KPL, those type of leagues. Uh, and and with the work that I've done, I, I can ascertain players' expected data for the IPL from their, say, TNPL or KL, KPL uh, data and, and work out the likelihood of, that they will be to be an above-average player in the IPL based on those numbers. Now... Um, I would say that my general perception is that IPL franchises tend to overpay for specific players from these type of leagues without perhaps understanding how big the step up is from those leagues to the IPL in terms of standard. Uh, and certainly there will be very, very few players in those leagues who I would want to to recommend paying multi-core, giving multiple, multiple core, core contracts. There are some good players, and there are some good players who don't get given opportunities. Now, I think that the problem with that is, is that there are so many matches in so many competitions. It is, if not one hundred percent impossible, it's virtually impossible for like a visual visual scout to scout all players efficiently. They can't be in multiple places at the same time. And not only that, if they go and watch a player play once or twice, it tells them nothing. Because even a world-class player can fail on, in a given innings or a given match. It doesn't tell them anything. So, but if we use data to, to, um, to look at 
and ascertain the quality of players. We cover every match. We can understand the difference of standards a lot better. And and, and I'm not saying that, that that kind of like a visual scouting is is should be should be should be sort of stopped doing. It. That, that I'm not I'm not suggesting that at all. What I am saying is that I think it would be very useful to have a sort of statistical shortlist of players generated, and then the visual scout can then dial in on those that short list of players and really devote his efforts to some specific players rather than having like a just 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 focusing on the whole match and the whole tournament if that makes sense i think i'll agree with you on this so what is what has been happening is that uh, a certain 3 4 players get recognized uh, from these tournaments and every team uh, tries to go after them and that raises their price uh which actually puts pressure on them when they come into ipl because uh they now have to perform their team expects them to perform having spent so much money on them so that pressure actually hinders their performances uh they actually need at least 2 3 years to uh understand the new level of cricket and get accustomed to it and start performing you will not only have you got the the pressure but you've got the fact that perhaps they were overpaid compared to their ability level as well so there's two things against them from the start Yeah but there, there, there but there are players in those leagues who who went unsold at the auction who I do think are good enough or not necessarily I'm not saying they they're going to be like necessarily play for India or anything like that but they would be like say a solid IPL player or would by picking them up cheap it would then enable the teams to devote but more resources to other key areas if that makes sense So do you have anybody in mind who you think has performed in these leagues and should be in IPL by now? Yeah, there's a few players. Um so um a couple of couple of bowlers who I think were overlooked in 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 the last auction. Some examples would be um Chama Malind, who's a former under 19 uh, left arm left arm pace bowler. Um now the reason why i think that is because one his his statistics at lower levels are are very reasonable um but also he he considerably outperforms his teammates in in the tournaments that he plays in so he's he's performing much better in the same conditions against the same batsmen in general than his teammates and and that's a key driver for success in my opinion and plus the fact that the um ipl teams rightly or wrongly have a view on this um value left arm bowlers uh very strongly and by picking him up as a as a left armer and he you could he could have been signed for a base price you know he doesn't didn't need wasn't didn't need to be expensive uh, um would then enable them to divert more resources to other areas rather than buying an expensive left armer for example and uh, another pace bowler is a uh, ganeshan pereswami as well who's mm. performed very well at in several tournaments recently um at, 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 you know at a lower level than the IPL uh, and I was very surprised that that he didn't get picked up as well now um just just trying to run through some charts on my computer at the moment um and and while he hasn't he hasn't played a, an IPL match yet uh, but he did get signed um a player like Devd Padikal uh mm. batsman opening batsman uh is highlighted as a player of extremely high potential and i would suggest that based on his sort of lower level data and his age and and the, the likely progression that he will make 
he's going to be the future superstar of Indian cricket. Yeah, he has been talked about a lot. Uh, he's been picked up by RCB this year, and uh, yeah. we're hoping that he'll get enough chances there because RCB is notorious of for not giving enough chances to players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, it's difficult to dispute that. Um, uh, it'll be interesting because I think he's on like a 20 lock deal at the moment. Uh, and um, with potentially a major auction for next season, the 2021 season, it'll yeah. be interesting to see whether whether they retain him and, and understand that potential that he might have. Um Otherwise, someone someone else might get a, a, a very good bargain in the future. Yeah. So, historically, <laughs> people that RCB has uh, let go have performed really well for the next team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, KL Rahul was, was obviously a very good example of that. And, and yeah. I was shocked about that completely. Because I think they, they retained Safras Khan ahead of him. Was that right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is a bit of a strange one. Uh, I mean, Rahul, I, I, I very highly rate. Yeah, I think he would be now amongst the top three uh, openers uh, in World T20. I would, I would agree with that. Yeah. So, uh, finally, I would like to uh, ask you two macro-level questions and then we can conclude. Uh, mm. One would be, according to you, what are the critical drivers of success in IPL? So... Uh, we see that uh, there are certain teams which are performing consistently, but there are teams like RCB and Kings Eleven who have not been able to perform uh, consistently. They, uh, there'll be one year when they'll reach the playoffs and then three years, they'll be uh, nowhere. So uh, what is the problem with these teams? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question. And I, and I think it was, I could do a separate podcast in itself about the reasons as to why that is, or the reason why I think that is. Um, okay, so RCB, for example, we've already spoken about them diverting a high, high percentage of their budget towards two marquee batsmen, which is not necessarily something that I would consider to be a consider, uh, much of a driver of success. Um, so that's a big problem that they've got. But I think also, like, I'm not convinced often that they play their players in their best role. I'm not sure that they they um, recruit particularly well uh, to to, to complement the players that, that that are at the franchise long term. And they have a big problem, in my view, uh, with regards to to finding premium level death bowlers. Now, there's this there's not a plentiful supply of premium death bowlers. Uh, particularly in the domestic market, in my opinion, but also also to some extent in um, the overseas market as well. Um, so having enough budget to find players who are premium and death bowler is critical. And, and I'm, I'm not sure after spending, so 28 crore, I think it is, on, on, on Coley and De Villiers combined, it, it's not very easy to, to have the budget for a premium death bowler after that when you've got the whole rest of your squad you need to, to find off, off, off the remaining money. Um, so that's a, that's a, that's an auction strategy for me. I think is is a big problem for RCB or has been a big problem for RCB. Kings Eleven, uh, I don't. I, I'm not entirely convinced about auction strategy either. Uh, and there seems to be a, quite a big turnover of players there as well, in terms of like year year to year. I'm talking about. Uh, and yeah, that's that's a, perhaps a slight issue as well. Um, K 
coach-wise, they seem to have a little bit of a turnover as well. And I think that this is the sort of thing that we were talking about earlier, like the three to four years of having that coherent planning in advance, having that identity, having that scenario whereby like a director of cricket has a vision. He, he wants a particular style of play. And then the coach that they bring in has to align his mindset he has to have that mindset already that's in line with the desired style of play. So there's no point in having that kind of scenario where a, a co- one coach wants uh, a bow bowling focused team, which is fine. And then they're replaced by a coach who wants to spend a load of money on batsmen. It has to be that coherent strategy, the coherent vision that's, that's, that's in place from like a director of cricket or a director of strategy kind of thing. Uh, and and I don't think that that's always been the case. So you might have coaches who have quite different mindsets, and it's almost like well, there's no real sort of coherent strategy for the future kind of thing, and no vision. I think that's very important to have that vision. So also in my view, uh, having a core of let's say seven to eight players, which mm-hmm. you can continue for a long term period, yeah. is also very important. Uh, teams yeah. that don't have it have not really succeeded so no, you're right you're absolutely right yeah as well and i think that, 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 that core a good chunk of that core has to be domestic yeah because the historical data that i've looked at for success in franchise t20 not just in india but around the world suggests that it's very very difficult to come in the top four with below average domestic performance hmm. so having high quality domestics is massive and, and, and that makes a lot of sense, really. I mean, you can pick up high quality overseas for not that much money. Yeah. So you don't need to spend a huge percentage of your budget on overseas players. The, then you need to spend, you need to make sure you've got high quality domestic players as a priority. And so, yeah, I, I would agree with that core, domestic core, very, very important. Got it. So, uh, the last question, how mm-hmm. do you see the game of T20 evolve from here in terms of strategies or in terms of, let's say, leagues versus uh, international cricket volume or team structures evolving to something different? So, what are your views uh, on that? Yeah, well, I'll start off with the leagues versus T20 internationals initially. I mean, they're not that comparable in a lot of ways because... Most leagues um, around the world, India included, they all have all the teams have like a level playing budget in terms of the financial resource that they have to recruit players. Now, that makes for a more level playing field, which is a very, very unique circumstance in a lot of sports. So, for example, English Premier League and football, the budgets for teams to uh, go from gigantic to tiny. So there's a much is a much bigger difference in ability from top to bottom, whereas that shouldn't really happen in the IPL. You know, teams if they're winning more than sixty percent of matches, they're doing very well. If they're winning fewer than forty percent of matches, they're doing very badly. But, you know, winning forty percent of matches in a football league will get you quite far. <laughs> you know, it's, it's different. It's different. Yeah. So, um, but then in looking comparing to T Twenty internationals, you know, countries, rich countries with with a big talent pool like India and, and England, for example. 
they should be having win percentages much higher than the best teams in, in T20 franchise leagues because they've got such a massive advantage over the, over the, their opponents because they, 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 have, they, have, they have money, they have good facilities, they have um, a vast player pool. Like I, I said to someone recently, you could, you could pick th- three England teams to play in the World T20 uh, World Cup and their batsmen would still probably be better than most other teams. The, 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 the talent pool is, is huge. And you see that as well, because at least England released their, I think it's a 25-man squad for the white ball cricket this summer. And there's very, very good players in that squad, yeah. no doubt about that, especially a batsman. Less strong in bowling, but the but, but, but batsmen are very strong. And, and, and these... these these uh, batsmen would improve most teams around the world. Um, so, in terms of expectation, there's a big difference between leagues and T20 internationals in terms of like how how good the best teams should be. Like right. I said, teams like India, England should be winning seventy plus percent, if not eighty percent, of their matches in T20 internationals because they've got more money and better players. It's that simple. But most T20 leagues don't have that difference in terms of finances and a bigger player pool than another rival team so that's a big difference um so in terms of strategies batsman versus bowl ups and team structures i think gradually we're going to kind of move along this path towards greater efficiency but certainly in the time that i've i've been working with cricket data in, in several teams the general climate would suggest that the progress is quite slow. So unless there's a complete revolution in, in imminently, which I don't see happening, um, particularly like post-COVID as well, where perhaps teams are going to be looking to economise rather than than uh, be proactive and, and look to, to, to investing in improvement. Um, I think it could be quite slow in the next five years, really, maybe looking at five years plus for for real, real you know faster progress and in terms of analytics maybe yeah well every analytics is evolving i mean i look at my work now compared to what i did like a year or two ago and it, it, I, I i think it's improved different i look at i have an inquisitive mind i think of new topics and angles to approach different problems on a on a regular basis so that will evolve it will improve, but the thing is, it doesn't matter if it improves or evolves unless teams are willing to embrace it. Sure. You can be the best analyst in your house. You can be the best analyst in the world, but if you're only working in your house and no one listens to you, then it's pointless. <laughs> True. <laughs> Anyone can be like that. That's why I think that there's a lot of, a, a lot of, you know, cricket hasn't kind of found that three-point moment yet, but because... The people who are capable of, of producing the three-point moment aren't really employed by teams enough. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of work that can be done. So hopefully, uh, I expect uh, that analytics will start playing a major role and then uh, we'll see better strategies, better team selections happening uh, in mm-hmm. IPL and around the world. Uh, yeah. One more thing that uh, I think could happen is that uh, this the three-layered league structure kind of a thing that you said. I think uh, that is something that everybody needs to embrace. 
and maybe ownerships uh, around leagues by the same team so like kkr has a team in caribbean premier league so maybe other teams can also uh, look at that even at a domestic level at a kpl yeah. or a kpl level where that becomes the breeding ground for our players to come in into IPL. So that could it's also... It's an interesting model because a lot of football teams have, have, have implemented that in the last sort of five years or so. They've, they've purchased teams in other countries and looking to sort of develop talent and then eventually use them find, you know, as a means to finding talent more efficiently. And what it also does is that you have a coaching staff which is now not just employed for two months. You have it for the full year and uh, that gives you continuity in terms of analytics, in terms of coaching, in terms of all other things and economies of scale kind of a thing also that we see in manufacturing companies that gets replicated in a cricket team. Yeah, no, I think that's very important as well, for sure. So thank you, Dan, for agreeing to become a part of our first podcast. We hope that our listeners will find the podcast interesting. Personally, I found this discussion very insightful and I'm really looking forward to reading your book now. We at Cricket Vidya wish you all the very best and hope that your book will be a huge success amongst the cricketing community. Also hoping to see you as part of a lot more T20 teams in the coming future. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed chatting and yeah, yeah, look to catch up in the future hopefully. So this was Dan Weston. We hope that you really enjoyed the discussion. Do subscribe to our podcast channel as we have many more such discussions lined up for you. Also, follow us on Twitter. Our channel is at the rate CrickWithya. You can also visit us at www.crickwithya.com to read our analytics-focused blog. Thank you and have a nice day.